This episode includes discussions of violence and racial discrimination that some listeners may find disturbing. Caution is advised, especially for listeners under 13. Something to note, all of the groups covered on this show operate in secret. The details included in this episode are based on extensive research, but ultimately can never be 100% verified except by society members themselves. In the old days, before the Romans spread Christianity, the people of Northern Europe worshiped the true gods who shaped their world. They believed these gods lived in Asgard, a realm at the very top of Yggdrasil, the world tree. One of these gods was Odin, the Allfather, a tireless seeker of knowledge. According to legend, Odin pushed his immortal body to its limits, hoping wisdom would reveal itself to him. For nine days and nights, Odin hung himself from Yggdrasil, a spear buried deep in his side. He spent hours peering into the depths of a magical well at the base of the tree. Just as Odin felt the last of his strength leeching from his bones, he saw something at the bottom of the pool, a series of magical symbols. They revealed incredible secrets, how to heal wounds, bind enemies, even raise the dead. They possessed all the power and knowledge in the Nine Realms. And now, Odin did too. At least, that's what the lecturer claimed as he addressed Tula Society members during a 1918 meeting. He told them that, like Odin, they would soon be called upon to make sacrifices. In return, they would gain their sacred birthright, all the knowledge of runic magic. They could harness the power of Odin, the ancient frost giants, and all the deities in Asgard. If they followed in the old gods' footsteps, the Tulis could create their idea of a new and better world. An Aryan world. Hi, I'm Vanessa Richardson. I'm Greg Polson. And this is Secret Societies, a Spotify original from Parcast. Every Thursday, we examine history's most exclusive organizations from around the world and try to shine a light on these mysterious groups. From the Illuminati to the Order of Nine Angles, we'll explore how much impact each secret society actually had on the world around them. This is our first episode on the Tula Society, a secret order of German occultists. Tulists were the first proponents of Aryan superiority. They also founded the German Workers' Party, a forerunner of the Nazis. This week, we'll trace the rise of the Tula Society, beginning with its enigmatic founder, Rudolf Freiherr von Zabottendorf. Under his guidance, the Tulists became a paramilitary force in revolutionary Munich during the early 1900s. Next week, we'll examine the Tula Society's influence on the Nazi Party, and we'll explore the rumored connections between Tulists, Nazis, and magical forces of darkness. We have all that and more coming up. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details.
Elevate every morning with Tommy John's Second Skin Underwear. The luxurious support of Second Skin guarantees everything will go smoothly. With over 20 million pairs sold and thousands of five-star reviews, guys love Tommy John. Plus, your most valuable assets are covered with Tommy John's best pair you'll ever wear or its free guarantee. Shop Tommy John's friends and family sale right now and get 25% off site-wide at TommyJohn.com slash Spotify. TommyJohn.com slash Spotify. See site for details. On October 1, 1946, the Court at the Palace of Justice in Nuremberg came to order. After ten and a half months of testimony, the trial was coming to an end, and the military tribunal was ready to give their verdict. Of the 24 high-level Nazis who stood accused of war crimes, three were acquitted, seven received prison sentences, and 12 were sentenced to death. Of the remaining two, one was medically unfit to stand trial, and the other died by suicide. The men sentenced at Nuremberg were war criminals, guilty of torture, genocide, and a campaign of hatred and brutality that would taint far more than a generation. But three of them also shared a secret bond, Alfred Rosenberg, Hans Frank, and Rudolf Hess. Rosenberg principally authored the Nazis' anti-Semitic racial theory. As Governor General, Frank was in charge of Nazi-occupied Poland's concentration camps, and Hess was once Hitler's second-in-command. All three were members of a secret occult order, the Tula Society. First founded in 1918, the Tula Society began as a philosophical group dedicated to two racist ideologies, Ariosophy and the Folkish Movement. In brief, Ariosophists sought some ancient, mysterious wisdom that they believed could connect all faiths. And they were convinced that this so-called wisdom would prove that Aryans, the ancestors of modern-day Germans, were a superior race. The Folkish Movement was an ethno-nationalist campaign that espoused a return to traditional German life. Many Folkish supporters romanticized German folklore they wished to eradicate remnants of Roman rule, like the Roman Catholic Church and the Roman court system, and often had a deep-seated hatred for non-Germans, especially those of Jewish descent. The Tula Society managed to use occult and esoteric traditions, like Germanic and Norse mythology, astrology, and fortune-telling, to support their notions of racial hierarchies. The Society's mystical focus came from its eccentric leader, Rudolf Freiherr von Sobotendorf. He called himself a baron and often swept around Munich streets in the traditional garb of an Ottoman military officer, a fez and golden epaulets. But his origins were far less exotic than his appearance. In 1875, Baron Sobotendorf was born Adam Alfred Rudolf Glauer in Hoyerswerda, Germany near the Polish border. The son of an engineer, Zabotendorf left Germany at a young age, seeking work and adventure. Like his father, Zabotendorf trained as an engineer. In 1898, at 23, he tutored two young children in Hanover, but was run out of town after having an affair with their mother. He then found work as a sailor before jumping ship in 1900 to prospect for gold in Australia. Zabotendorf didn't spend much time down under. Not long after arriving, his mining partner died. Penniless, Zabotendorf then sailed halfway across the world to Alexandria, Egypt. 
There, the 25-year-old Zabottendorf became obsessed with Eastern mysticism. He was captivated by the mystery of the pyramids, hieroglyphics, and ancient rituals. Soon, he became a devotee of the Sufi whirling dervishes, Islamic mystics who spun in meditative circles for hours. His thirst for occult knowledge took him to all corners of Egypt and the greater Middle East, including to Constantinople and the home of an influential Ottoman officer named Hussein Pasha. In time, Pasha became Zabatendorf's friend, then benefactor. He let Zabatendorf stay with him for years and, in that time, introduced him to a diverse array of Eastern mystical groups. Zabettendorf joined the Rite of Memphis, an autocratic Freemason lodge. He also became involved with the Bektashi Order, a group of Turkish Sufi dervishes who studied alchemy and numerology. He even allegedly converted to Islam. But Zabettendorf found passions besides the occult as well, inspired by a groundswell of Turkish ethno-nationalism that swept the Ottoman Empire in the 1900s, he joined the Young Turks. The Young Turks were ostensibly an opposition movement against the rule of Ottoman Sultan Abdul Hamid II. Many within their ranks believed that the Turkish were superior to the Slavs, Armenians, Russians, and Jewish people flooding the country. Years after Zabatendorf left their ranks, the Young Turks expelled or murdered 1.5 million Armenians between 1914 and 1923. But in 1913, with visions of whirling dervishes and racial purity running through his mind, Zabatendorf traveled back home to Germany. Though he'd left a working-class engineer, he returned proclaiming that he was a Turkish officer and an aristocrat. He asserted that a nobleman named Heinrich von Zabatendorf had formally adopted him in 1908, making him a baron. Naturally, his claim was met with some skepticism. But in 1914, Zabatendorf arranged for an Austrian member of the von Zabatendorf line to legally recognize him. And they did. Afterward, he used his official title to rub elbows in upper-class circles. Then, in 1916, Zabatendorf read a newspaper advertisement that sought members for a folkish group in Berlin. The ad called for fair-haired, blue-eyed men and women of Aryan stock to join a society called the Germanenorden, or German Order. But what caught Zabatendorf's attention the most were three cryptic symbols inscribed at the bottom of the page. He didn't know what to make of them, but he wanted to know more. Zabatendorf met with Hermann Pohl, the head of the Berlin chapter of the Germanenorden, and the two became fast friends. They spoke for hours about mysticism's pagan roots, occult racial theory, and their common desire for a German state. Poles suspected that the ancient symbols found on pre-Roman artifacts contained powerful magic and mystical truths, and that Germanic and Norse tribes had once been able to read them, but Pohl believed their Aryan bloodline had become polluted from generations of intermarriage with Jewish people, thus clouding their ability to decipher the script. This unfounded racist theory was just what Zimbottendorf wanted to hear. After the meeting, he became an official member of the Germanenorden. At the start of 1917, 
Pohl gave Zabotendorf a list of 100 names of Volkish supporters and tasked him with establishing a Bavarian wing of the Germaninorden in Munich. By December 21st, Zabotendorf followed through on his orders and established himself as the master of the Munich Germaninorden Lodge. Now, all he needed were some loyal recruits. In early 1918, Zabotendorf met an art student named Walter Nauhaus. Nauhaus had been a member of the Folkish Youth Group that wandered the countryside of Prussia. Like Zabotendorf, Eastern philosophy fascinated Nauhaus. He studied astrology, Kabbalah, Hinduism, and Egyptian mythology. He even ran a small student group that discussed Norse and Germanic legends and philosophy. He'd named it the Tula Society. According to the ancient Greek geographer Pythias, Tula was a land he discovered in the far north. Today, historians think the Tula Pythias found was most likely located in modern-day Iceland or Scandinavia. But in 1918, Nauhaus believed it was really the home of the Hyperborean giants of Greek myth and were the ancestors of modern Germans. Zabotendorf and Nauhaus struck up a partnership. They absorbed Nauhaus's student club into Zabotendorf's new chapter of the Germaninorden and adopted the name Tula Society for their hybrid group. By the spring of 1918, they had 200 members. By the fall, that number grew to 1,500. And as the Tula Society grew in size, it grew in power. Soon, Tulists turned their attention from merely discussing their ideal world to achieving it. With the power of ancient German teachings, Zabotendorf and his Tulists hoped to spark a revolution. But for anyone who didn't fit into their imagined new world order, a Tulist victory meant only one thing, death. Coming up, the Tulist Society becomes an agent provocateur. Parcasters, you know the world can be chaotic and unpredictable, but how far would you go to turn the tides of favor in your direction? In the newest Spotify original from Parcast, we're taking a closer look at bad omens, good luck charms, and age-old traditions that just might have the power to change our fates. Each episode of Superstitions presents a new drama that unpacks a different belief. Can holding your breath while passing a cemetery save your life? Will carrying a rabbit's foot bring you luck? How can you go through life always avoiding the number 13? And why should you try? They may seem mystical, unusual, completely illogical, but one thing is certain, you ignore them at your own risk. You can find and follow Superstitions free on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. To hear more ParCast shows, search ParCast Network in Spotify's search bar and find a growing slate of thrilling new series to enjoy. Elevate every morning with Tommy John's Second Skin Underwear. The luxurious support of Second Skin guarantees everything will go smoothly. With over 20 million pairs sold and thousands of five-star reviews, guys love Tommy John. Plus, your most valuable assets are covered with Tommy John's best pair you'll ever wear or its free guarantee. Shop Tommy John's friends and family sale right now and get 25% off site-wide at TommyJohn.com slash Spotify. TommyJohn.com slash Spotify. See site for details. Now, back to the story. 
Theosophy was a religious movement rooted in occultism and Eastern religions that first appeared in New York in 1875. Though they espoused many strange beliefs at the intersection of science, spirituality, and fiction, one in particular fascinated Rudolf von Zabotendorf. According to theosophists, there were once five races of humanoid ancestors. Of these so-called root races, the Aryans were said to be the most powerful, and they believed the Aryans descended from the last survivors of the lost nation of Atlantis, and Germans were their direct descendants. Theosophists drew evidence for their racial theory from linguistic studies. German scholars had found that many European languages were ultimately related to Sanskrit, which originated in Southeast Asia. Many important works of Hindu, Buddhist, and Jainist philosophy were all written in Sanskrit. Because of this, linguists believed that Indo-European languages, like Hindi, German, Latin, and Swedish, all shared a common ancestral tongue. And theosophists and Tulists claimed that the Aryans were its original speakers. According to their version of events, Aryans were also the ancestors of all great civilizations, the Greeks, Celts, Romans, and Ottomans. Now there is a small kernel of truth in this theosophist claim. There is a link between all Indo-European languages. Some linguists theorize that they can all be traced back to around 2000 BCE when people migrated out of Central Asia. But back in turn-of-the-century Germany, the Tula Society claimed that Germans were the only pure Aryans. While different ethnicities like Indians were related, Tulists argued that they didn't have as much Atlantean blood flowing through their veins. To represent the link between German Aryans and ancient Indians, Tulists co-opted the swastika. The swastika was initially used in many ancient religions and cultures to symbolize good fortune, Archaeologists have found swastikas on European stones and artifacts dating back to the Bronze Age. But the symbol was especially popular in Hinduism, Buddhism, and Jainism. So the Theosophists and Tulists associated it with the Aryan Indians. Believing that it must have mystical powers, the Tulists decorated their Munich headquarters with the marking. Under the shadow of the swastika, the group would induct new members into their order. We don't have any surviving records of the Tula Society's initiation ceremony, but we can surmise that it likely resembled that of the Germanenorden. And to join the Germanenorden, you had to apply. And to apply, you needed to provide birth records for yourself, your spouse, and your families, dating back three generations. If the Germanenorden thought you were of pure Aryan descent, you'd find an invitation in your mail. At the specified date and time, you were to report to your local Germanenorden headquarters. The dress code? White tie. Per your summons, you enter the halls of the Germanenorden Lodge. Inside, you're surprised to find a room full of German socialites chatting over cocktails. It's not the circle of sinister chanting figures you expected. Men smoke cigars in black satin coats. Women wearing floor-length gowns laugh over glasses of imported cognac you hear gentle sounds of a small harmonium drifting towards you. Soon, a man in a blue robe enters. He calls all initiates to attention. The man introduces himself as the master of ceremonies for the evening's ritual. 
He instructs you and your fellow inductees to put on a blindfold and a ceremonial mantle. Blinded, you feel a hand grasp yours and slowly guide you out of the waiting room into an inner sanctum. From somewhere ahead of you, you hear voices crescendo with the music. You recognize the Pilgrim's Chorus from Richard Wagner's opera, Tannhäuser. Your heart swells with emotion as you listen to lyrics about returning to one's native land. As the final notes fade away, a deep voice sounds from the front of the room. The speaker introduces himself as the master of the Germanenorden chapter. He tells you the order's purpose, to preserve and promote the Aryan race. The master speaks at length about the sacred legacy of Germans, which he says can be traced back to the pre-Christian Vikings and their gods. He impresses upon you the importance of your singular duty from now on, to monitor, oppress, and eventually oust all Jewish and other undesirable people from German lands. You hear someone strike a match, and a massive fire ignites at the rear of the room. Its heat wafts toward you. Hands lift the ceremonial mantle from your shoulders. When your blindfold is removed, you and the other novices blink in the candlelight as your eyes adjust to the strange scene before you. The master is standing at the front of the room on a dais under a white canopy flanked by two men. These members, the knights, wear long white robes with horned metal helmets. In front of the platform stands two order members wearing white sashes. They're the treasurer and the secretary. At the rear of the room, a large metal chalice burns with an eternal flame. The rest of the lodge officers stand in a semicircle before it. Beyond the grail's flickering flame, you can see a choir gathered. The chorus of forest elves wear green, with leaves attached to their faces and woven into their hair. Their songs evoke images of Germany's wild past. As you watch, the master raises a ceremonial spear in the air. He tells you that it's the Spear of Odin, the All-Father. The knights draw their swords and cross them over the spear as the elves begin to sing again. This time a song from Wagner's opera Lohengrin about the German mythological figure sworn to protect the Holy Grail. The master, spear in his hand, begs Odin's blessing. He asks you if you swear to uphold the duties of the Germanenorden. You shout your affirmation along with your fellow initiates. The master's voice grows louder and more powerful, demanding you follow the old gods, Odin, Freya, and Thor. Then the master shouts above the din his final question. Do you swear to commit by any means necessary to make a new pure world for the Aryan race? It seems like the whole building rings with shouts of I. You hear the order members, the forest elves, the master himself cheering along with you. Now you are all one, brothers and sisters of the Germanenorden. Much like the initiation ceremony itself, the Germanenorden, and later the Tula Society, revolved around the intersection of a mystical, Viking-inspired ethnic identity and virulent anti-Semitism. Like young American hippies and flower children in the 1960s, Germans became attracted to the notion of a simpler way of life in reaction to a rapidly changing world. 
Many German artists and intellectuals believe that, in the modern world, the production of goods, consumption, and the pursuit of wealth bound the human spirit. Many Germaden-Norden lodges registered under names that harken back to nature. The Berlin Lodge called itself the League for Nordic Art and Science. The Munich Lodge was known only as the Tula Society. The Tula Society saw their hatred of Jewish people as a natural extension of their folkish views. They associated Jewish people with all the things they hated about the modern world, industrialization, capitalism, mass media, and big business. Inside the Tula Society were these subgroups called the Rings of Tula. They were organized around specific interests, like astrology, divination, and ancient runes. The most influential of the Rings of Tula was the Political Workers' Circle. Inspired by the popularity of socialism and communism at the time, Zabotendorf wanted to reach out to German workers and get them involved in his occultist Aryan vision. He hoped that a group that discussed labor rights could attract the working class and spread anti-Semitic messages. By January 1919, the Tula Workers' Circle would give rise to the German Workers' Party. And by February 1920, under the guidance of an idealistic young army officer named Adolf Hitler, the group would morph once again. It finally became the National Socialist German Workers' Party, also known as the Nazi Party. But before the Tulists grew into the Nazis, they first had to quell a revolution in Munich. Coming up, the Tula Society takes to the streets. Now back to the story. On August 17, 1918, the Tula Society threw a party. They'd grown so much in a year that they'd expanded into new quarters, a glamorous five-room suite at the Munich Four Seasons Hotel. The walls were decorated with the society's new emblem, a round, wheel-like swastika with a long dagger superimposed on top. They were celebrating the progress they'd made. A month earlier, the Tulis had bought a newspaper called the Volkischer Beobachter, or People's Observer. The Beobachter would eventually become the flagship newspaper of the Nazi party. Through its publishing wing, Adolf Hitler would distribute his notorious memoir, Mein Kampf, in 1925. But in 1918, Beobachter belonged exclusively to the Tula Society. As the year drew to a close, a dark shadow loomed on the horizon. Socialist and communist-leaning revolutionary councils pressured the German emperor, Kaiser Wilhelm II, to abdicate. They demanded Germany withdraw from World War I, create more democratic representation in the government, and increase economic equality. The tension finally came to a head on November 7, 1918, the first anniversary of the communist Russian Revolution. After learning he'd lost the military's support, King Ludwig III of Bavaria fled the residence palace in Munich. The next day, theater critic Kurt Eisner declared that Bavaria was now a free socialist state. He would be the prime minister of the new republic. One more day passed before Kaiser Wilhelm II abdicated his throne. The bloodless revolution came to an end. By the afternoon, the rest of Germany was officially no longer an empire. It was now the Weimar Republic. Though the move from monarchy to republic may sound like a positive progression, 
the Tula Society was devastated. Tulis believed that it signaled the end of the mighty German Empire. The folkish fatherland, run by Aryan Germans, had dissipated in less than 48 hours, and now their beloved state of Bavaria had become a socialist republic run by a Jewish intellectual, Kurt Eisner. To the Tulists, it felt like the end times. But Sabatendorf wasn't giving up. On November 10th, he called all Tula Society members to the Four Seasons. He had a new plan and a new direction for the group. Zabottendorf stood at the head of the room and gave a rousing speech to the downtrodden Tulists. He said, Yesterday we experienced the collapse of everything which was familiar, dear, and valuable to us. In the place of our princes of Germanic blood rules our deadly enemy, Judah. From today on, our symbol is the Red Eagle, which warns us that we must die in order to live. The Tula Society continued to meet as they always had, to discuss history and philosophy over cakes and coffee. From the outside, they were a German culture club full of students and stuffy intellectuals. But on the inside, they implemented a three-pronged scheme. First, they'd use their contacts to begin stockpiling weapons and ammunition at their headquarters. Second, they'd begin recruiting and training a paramilitary group called the Tula Combat League, also known as the Kampfbund. And third, they'd begin planning for a counter-revolution. They knew Eisner's new government was on shaky ground. It was only a matter of time before an opportunity presented itself. And when it did, the Tula Combat League would be waiting. On December 4, 1918, opportunity came knocking. Eisner had scheduled a speech at a public hall in the resort town of Bad Eibling, just outside of Munich. The Tulists decided they would storm the meeting, kidnap Eisner, and enact a coup. With Eisner out of the way, they'd instate the Bavarian Free State's interior minister, Erhard Auer, as the new prime minister. Sabatendorf believed Auer would be sympathetic to their plot and work to reinstate the Kaiser on their behalf. In the days before the lecture, Tulists rode through the streets of Bad Eibling on bicycles, handing out leaflets and encouraging peasants to attend Eisner's speech. They hoped that a crowd of agrarian, lower-class workers would be sympathetic to their cause. Zabotendorf arranged for a car to be waiting outside the hall, so Tulis could kidnap Eisner, force him inside, and drive off to the mountains before anyone could react. On the day of the speech, Zabotendorf, one of his Tulist recruits, and 15 Kampfbund troops waited outside the hall at Bad Eibling. But inside, the building was packed to the rafters with radical leftists from nearby towns, all of whom supported Eisner's government. As the hour drew closer and Eisner took the stage, the Tulist's resolve wavered. The coup died before Eisner ever spoke a word. Though the Tulists had faltered at Bot Eibling, their dream of deposing Eisner soon became a reality. But shockingly, it wouldn't be a member who pulled the trigger. It would be a rejected applicant. Anton Graf von Arko of Folly was a 22-year-old student and far-right activist. He tried to join the Tula Society, but he'd been turned away when he couldn't pass their heritage test. His mother was Jewish. 
It's unclear how he reconciled his views on Judaism with his own heritage. Determined to prove his worth to the Tula Society, Arco Folli set out on February 21, 1919, with one thing on his mind, kill Eisner. That morning, Eisner was on a demoralizing errand. He'd lost a recent election and was on his way to tender his resignation at the Bavarian Parliament. As he made his way through the crowds of Munich city center, he didn't notice Arco Folli approaching him from behind. In the middle of the crowded thoroughfare, Arco Folli raised his gun and fired two shots, both striking the unwitting Eisner in the back of the head. The Prime Minister died before he hit the pavement. Though bodyguards returned fire, they only managed to wound the far-right assassin. In jail, Arco Folli reportedly later justified the murder, saying, Eisner is a Bolshevist. He isn't German. He subverts all patriotic thoughts and feelings. He is a traitor to this land. Less than an hour after the shooting, Bavarian Minister of the Interior, Erhard Auer, addressed assembled lawmakers to tell them of Eisner's passing. As he did, more right-wing extremists opened fire from the gallery. Three government officials, including Auer, were wounded and one killed. The attack left the government in chaos. In the days and weeks after Eisner's death, there would be fighting in the streets, a communist insurrection, and private paramilitary armies would even march on Munich. With two small bullets, Arco Folli set the Tula Society's dreams into motion. And in the next two decades, a seemingly unstoppable Aryan force would crash over Europe like a wave. And the Tula Society would be at its helm. Thanks again for tuning into Secret Societies. We'll be back Thursday with part two where we track the synthesis of the Tula Society's racist ideas into the Nazi Party's horrifying policies. For more information on the Tula Society, amongst the many sources we used, we found both Hammer of the Gods, The Tula Society and the Birth of Nazism by David Lurson, and The Occult Roots of Nazism, Secret Aryan Cults and Their Influence on Nazi Ideology by Nicholas Goodrick Clark, extremely helpful to our research. You can find all episodes of Secret Societies and all other originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. We'll see you next time. Secret Societies was created by Max Cutler and is a Parcast Studios original. It is executive produced by Max Cutler, sound designed by Scott Stronick, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, and Bruce Kitovich. This episode of Secret Societies was written by Molly Quinlan, with writing assistance by Ali Wicker, and stars Greg Paulson and Vanessa Richardson. Hang a horseshoe above your door, keep a rabbit's foot in your pocket, and follow Superstitions free on Spotify. Listen every Wednesday for the surprising backstories to our most curious beliefs and thrilling tales that illuminate the mystical eeriness of our favorite superstitions.